our Father, we do pray, we do praise you for that treasure that we have found, the gift of your Son given for us. Thank you that not only did he speak to the disciples so long ago, but he speaks to us today through the pages of your word, as you, by your Spirit, speak to us. So, Lord, help us just now as we come um, to look at Esther, as we come to look at difficult words and challenging words. Lord, would you speak to us according to your will, for Christ's sake. Amen. Old habits die hard, don't they? Or at least that's what they say. Especially things that are ingrained in us, uh, maybe from our, our childhood or whatever. Uh, my granny, on my mom's side, was a primary school teacher. Um, back in the day, and I, I mean back in the day, old school primary school teacher, strict and all the rest, but a, a lovely lady, but I've heard stories uh, from pupils that were in her classes that I, I don't believe, to be honest, because she was my granny, she was lovely, but um, I believe she was very strict, you know, none of this learning by play stuff that kids do these days, accuracy, reading, writing, arithmetic, and especially in grammar and accuracy of words. Um, my mum tells me the story that there was a wee boy came up to my granny in great distress and he says, Mrs. Macaulay, Mrs. Macaulay, he took that there pencil off me. What was that? He took that there pencil off me. She said, well, never mind the pencil. First of all, there's no such thing as that there pencil. It's that pencil there. And he couldn't have taken it off you because it was never on you. But he might have taken it from you. And the wee boy just looked up, completely bewildered, thinking, I just want my pencil back. But here was this woman correcting his grammar, even in his distress. And she was the same at home, um, even with her own children. So it's ingrained in my mum. And I can remember many times growing up, mum would have stopped me in the middle of, of saying something. She said, what did you say? What did you say? You know, because I'd maybe said that my brother had went somewhere instead of had gone somewhere or whatever. And, you know, she was, she was straight in there. She never let it up. Even recently, as recently as a couple of months ago, I said that um, somebody was giving away something for free. You know that one they gave away for free? And she said, no, no, it's either free or it's for nothing. But it's not for free. <laughs> Who knew? I didn't even know that was a thing. But apparently, I looked it up on Google. Apparently, that's right. You shouldn't say for free. I still get corrected this day. But the even scarier thing is that it's happening to me with my children. And I mean, Justin keeps me going all the time that I'm turning into my dad, but here I am turning into my mum. And I'm trying to be gentle with them about it, you know, but it, it, it's out before I know it. Um, and it happens online, I have to control myself, you know, there was somebody last week, one of my friends on Facebook had turned 30, and they put a post up on Facebook that said, thanks everybody really looking forward to my 30th year. And I had to hold myself back. I said, you've already had 30 years. This is your 31st year. But I couldn't do it because it was his birthday. I just thought friends would leave. No, that's not true. But old habits die hard. It takes a lot of effort to hold these things in, doesn't it? Not least we know in good old Northern Ireland of sectarianism. You know, we, we, we have these things, and, and some people have them kind of ingrained in us. Things are, are changing, but attitudes are still there. I, I'm very grateful. I, I had a kind of a, a balanced childhood. I kind of saw both sides of things. So I went to a primary school at the bottom of Monk's Town Estate, which is a loyalist um, estate. And, you know, I, I 
people used to sing, alternative words to songs in assemblies that they used to sing. I remember um, playing football against a, a Catholic school that they wouldn't come to our school to play. We had to play in a neutral venue. I remember egging their bus as they left. Um, they beat us, by the way, you know, so they were, they were asking for it. You know, I, I remember, um, actually, and this is, this is very serious, I remember when I was about P5 or so, um, about 45 minutes after school ended, thankfully I was away, and there was a man murdered in, in Monk's time simply because he was a Catholic. There'd kind of been this tit-for-tat thing going on. Um, dissident Republicans had killed a Protestant taxi driver a few days earlier, so, you know, here was the reparation. I remember what the kids said, and this is, you know, nine, ten-year-old kids saying, well, you know, he was a Catholic. What was he doing here? And that's, that's really sad, but it, it's ingrained on people sometimes from a young age. And as I say, I'm really grateful and that my parents would never um, have encouraged anything like that at all. In fact, I, I, I was telling the story recently, but my dad's a great example. Um, I, I was at a Rangers game. We, we are coming to Esther, by the way. Um, I was at a Rangers game, and um, the song started going around. Stand up if you hate Celtic. Stand up. And everybody stands. And I'm, again, about 10 or 11 years old, and I can't see when the people are standing up in front of me. So I go, I wasn't singing, but I go to stand up, and I just feel this hand on my arm, and it pulled me back down, and it was my dad. And he just had his arms folded, he said, no. That's all he said. And he looked grumpy for the next five minutes, because none of us could see the game. I'm very grateful that, that I had good role models there, but this sort of thing, it's passed on from generation to generation, isn't it? something that is ingrained in our culture and it's difficult to shift past. I'm not saying that we can't have um, views on the constitutional position of the land that we live in, but sectarianism is another thing. But the reason why I mention all this about old habits and particularly sectarianism is because actually the text that we read in Esther centers around, I think, the idea of sectarianism and it's not it's not obvious maybe from the first read but when we look at it i think we'll see it so so we read those verses from um, the end of esther chapter 2 to begin and mordecai essentially saves the king's life he says look there's this plot going on against you and and he, he tells esther and she tells the king and she makes sure that mordecai gets the credit and it's recorded, it's recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king, so it's written down. So Mordecai's probably thinking, I, I'm going to get something here. And I know that might seem very um, sort of selfish to us, you know, if I did something for the queen, it's like, you know, she might give me a wee medal or something, but she's not going to really reward me. But the culture here is really quite different. Mordecai, we, we read, is at the king's gate, which is probably not just a gate, but kind of the government building. So he's a civil servant who works for the king, and he's done something great for the king. And so he would, he would maybe expect, you know, a wee promotion or something like that. That was quite normal in this culture. I mean, remember Joseph, I know it's a few hundred years earlier, but after he was sold into slavery by his brothers in Egypt, Potiphar buys him. God blesses his work, we're told, and because he's successful, Potiphar promotes him. To rule over his household, he's rewarded. Then when he's falsely accused of making advances on Potiphar's wife, he's put in prison. But when he interprets dreams of a vapor and cupbearer, well, when, then, then that means when Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret, the cupbearer remembers. And he brings
Prince Joseph either prisoner, and Joseph literally goes from prisoner to prime minister. So in this kind of culture, it wasn't unusual. And Mordecai is looking for credit. And if you were reading this, I think if we were reading this as the original readers, we would have been expecting that. As we read these words, we see Mordecai do this great thing, and we think, yeah, okay, he's going to get rewarded. But then there's a twist in the tale. Because at the start of chapter 3, we read, not Mordecai gets promoted, but somebody else does. Mark, my Sunday school teacher called him Haman. Uh, I think you're right with Haman, but I'll probably switch between the two and because I'm, I'm royally confused about it now. But after these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of the other nobles. We're expecting Mordecai to get a promotion, but Haman or Haman gets it. Then we read that Mordecai will bow down. Maybe because of this kind of sense of injustice. Here I expected to get something, but this other guy got it instead. But there's more at play than that if we look more closely at the text. Sectarianism is in there too. In chapter 3, verse 1, the author is quite deliberate to tell us that Haman is son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. That little detail in there, the Agagite, it's very significant that we could skip over it. King Agag was the king of the Amalekites, um, who in Exodus chapter 17 attacked God's people. It's that famous battle, you maybe know the story, where Moses holds his hands up and while his hands are up, the Israelites are winning. When he gets tired and the hands droop, the Israelites are losing, so these guys come along and hold his hands up to make sure that they win. That, that was King Agag. And after that battle, we read this. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So these people are, are enemies. The Lord has said he will be against the Amalekites or the Agagites um, forever. And this happens. There's different battles between them. In the time of Saul, God eventually tells Saul to go in, attack the Amalekites, to destroy them, to leave no survivors. And he nearly obeyed. He nearly obeyed. He, he, he slaughtered them all, but he let the king live. He let King Agai live. So there's a bit of debate around Esther chapter 3. Is this guy a biological descendant of King Agai? Or is he just somebody who's been kind of labelled as an Agagite just because he hates the Jews? If we look a bit later down on at verse 10, it says, So the king took a signet ring from his finger, gave it to him and son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So we got that little detail in there. Basically, the Jews and the Agagites, they don't get on. So this little label of Agagite is sometimes just used to describe somebody who is essentially anti-Semitic, somebody who hates the Jews. It's a label that was used in the last century of the Nazis and is even used by subgroups today um, of Palestinians. Now, that's not sort of mainstream Israel, but some uh, groups in Israel would use that kind of language. So that's why these guys don't like one another. That's why Mordecai won't bow down. And here he isn't afraid to say why. You might remember last week that, that Mordecai tells Esther to keep her Jewish heritage a secret. Don't tell the king that you're a Jew. But here he's not behind the door in saying, I won't bow down to him because I am a Jew. These guys do not like one another. 
And it's even worse, it's not just that they don't like one another, but it's I don't like him and he got something from the king that I didn't get. Jealousy, sectarianism, and it's reciprocated. Haman decides to destroy all Jews. In verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. It doesn't really seem to follow in logic, you know, that if I don't like somebody and if I'd like to get rid of them, actually I'll just get rid of all of those people, that whole nation. But that is how much Haman did not like Mordecai. And later on, we're told that he sends out this edict to destroy, kill, and annihilate them. Now, I thought he probably had his bases covered with destroy, but he went on to, to, to kill and to annihilate them too. Um, so yeah, this is, this is extreme, um, and this is pretty ghastly. So then what happens? Well, Haman goes away, he's gonna make a plan, and he casts lots, which is called the poor or the pure. Now, lots are something which we don't really you know, know a lot about in our day and age. They're, they're little cubes, and, and, and they had like dots on them, so they look like dice that we would know. And people used them in, in ancient cultures for, for divination, for working out the will of the gods. But God himself actually does permit his people um, to use it from time to time to, to tell him his will. Joshua casts lots in the presence of the Lord, we're told in Joshua chapter 18, when he's dividing up the land among the tribes. So the Lord does let his people use these lots. The same word, the same word pur, there or purim, is used by Joshua to divvy up the land. It comes out much as presumably a human's disappointment, it comes out as the 12th month. This is the first month we're told, and it's the 12th month. Um, I think one commentary I read said that these lots were cast on the 17th of April, and he had to wait till the 8th of March the next year. I don't know how they worked that way, but I'm just going to assume that they're more intelligent than I am, and that they know it. So he, he had to wait 11 months, essentially. It's worth not missing that. God is in control here. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. The Lord is in control here. He, he's not mentioned, he's not mentioned in the whole book of Esther, but he's putting all these pieces together so that he will eventually deliver his people. So here we have it. He's cast a lot. He knows when he's going to carry out this evil act of destroying, killing, and annihilating the Jews. And remember, this is all the Jews. So even the Jews who've been allowed to go back home to Jerusalem, to Judah, they're still under Persian rule. So when it says here that this is going to be all throughout King Xerxes' reign, well, it's, it's all the Jews in the world. It doesn't exclude anybody. Then Haman goes and, and he's sneaky in front of King Xerxes. There's a bit of skullduggery going on in verses 8 to 11. You know, he says, then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. He doesn't say who it is. There's, there's this certain people. They don't listen to what you say. They don't do what you want to do. And it's not in your interest to let this continue. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. 
and I will put 10,000 talents, which is about three and a half tons of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So he's sneaky, he doesn't say to the king who these people are, and he essentially bribes him. He says, look, all this silver, and it's thought at this time, and the historians tell us that the um, Persians had attacked the Greeks, they'd suffered great losses, so their, their treasuries were quite low in reserves. So you know, he's appealing, he's appealing to the king's weakness, saying, look, I'll give you all this money. The king abdicates authority, he takes off his signet ring, and he says, there you go, you have this. And the significance of that symbolism is, is simply that when you, when you made a law in that time and you put the wax on it and you stamped it with the signet ring, it had the king's authority. So the king's essentially saying, you have my authority to do this, go and do whatever you like. So Haman goes and does that. He makes this edict. It's written in, in the name of King Xerxes himself, sealed with his own ring, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Azor, March and to plunder their goods. And a copy of that text was to be issued as law in every province, made known to every people of every nationality, in every language. So it spread out. And then Haman and the king, verse 15, they sit down and they have a drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. That word bewildered, literally the, the Hebrew means it's agitated. Um, I think one modern translation says that they sat back and had a drink while the city reeled from the news. So there's, there's chaos everywhere because of this very dramatic edict that has been put out. I have to confess, when I first read this chapter earlier in the week, I wondered what we could possibly get. I mentioned that what could we possibly get out of a text where somebody wants to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews in the world. But, but I do think there are some points of application for us. I know we're, we're kind of cutting off in the middle of the story. We're not going to see the resolution. This has ended on a, on a cliffhanger. The people have received this edict. The city is reeling. And also what it tells us is that this was sent out on the 13th day of the first month, which is the eve of Passover. So just as the Jews are about to remember how God delivered them in the past, there's this question, is he going to deliver us again? We have this great threat against us. Will he deliver us from our enemies? The city reads, and we're left on this cliffhanger. So, what can we take out of this? Well, I think tonight we can take two challenges, and hopefully two comforts and encouragements. The first challenge is a challenge to our selfishness. A challenge to our selfishness. And all the characters that we see in this story display some level of selfishness. The actions of, of each of them act as a challenge to this. First of all, Mordecai, he wants recognition for what he has done, doesn't he? He thinks, well, I've saved the king's life. I really should be, you'll be elevated in some way. But this other guy, this guy, just so happens that I have a bit of sectarian hatred against him. He's being raised up instead. I don't like that. And it's our natural way, isn't it? Hopefully, but maybe not to be sectarian, but it's our natural way to think that when we do something, we're entitled. We're entitled to a little praise or a little reward. Whether it's something we do in our day-to-day -day lives, whether it's something we do in church in service of the Lord, we're tempted to seek a reward for it. 
We sometimes like it when, when people make a point of, of thanking us. And it's not that that shouldn't happen. It's not that nobody should be thanked. But it shouldn't be a motivation for serving God. It's not the way of God's people. Jesus taught uh, a parable in Luke 17. He said, suppose one of you has a servant plying or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he rather say, prepare me my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? No. So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. This is true for us in, in, in any walk of life. If it's, if it's our job, then it's our job. We've only done our duty. It's the same when we're serving the Lord. We don't do our acts of righteousness in front of others. Think of Jesus telling the, the story of Pharisees and people who, who prayed out loud in front of people just for sure. He said, no, that's not the way you do it. You take yourself off, you take it into a room, you pray in secret where your father sees what is done in secret. When you give to the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't go out to be seen. Don't look for recognition. In fact, Jesus says that people who do that have received their reward already. Mordecai wants recognition for what he has done. It leads him to sin. It leads him to grow bitter. It leads him to resent Haman. So he doesn't give him the honor that the king has commanded. And that leads to arguments. And ultimately that leads to disaster, both for Mordecai and for all God's people. When all we're concerned about is being recognised, it's sure to lead us to disappointment. It's surely to lead us into more sin. So we're, we're challenged by Mordecai seeking recognition. We're also challenged by human or man who wanted to get his own way. He wanted to get his own way. He's kind of an authoritarian kind of figure. A bit like Xerxes last week, if, if you were here. You know, he commanded his wife to come in before him so that his guests could look at her because she was beautiful. She refused, and when she didn't, he, well, threw his toys out of the pram. He said, what are we going to do? I, I, I need complete obedience. And all his advisors said, well, if you let her away with this, all the wives in the kingdom will, will be doing it. They'll all be uh, disobeying us. They'll be disarray. They're authoritarian. Their, their way needs to be had. And it's the same here for Haman. He won't let this go. He is going to command obedience. And it leads him to great evil. It leads him to this threat against all the Jews. But we can't imagine um, the evil that would be within a person to issue an edict like that. But that's what he does. It leads him to, to lies and deception. He, he deceives the king. He's not honest about what he's going to do or who these people are. He bribes the king. He, he offers him this money. Although the king doesn't take it, to be fair. But still, Haman is offering. Maybe we shouldn't expect anything better from him and since you know, he's not one of God's people. But I think there's a valuable point here for us. In 1 Corinthians 13, that, that well-known passage about love, love is patient, love is kind, we're told that love does not insist on its own way. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't insist on its own way. If we insist on our own way, my way or the highway in our relationships or as parents um, or in work, it's not loving. And ultimately, if it's not loving, it's sinful 
and it's going to lead us to trouble. So we're challenged about wanting things our own way. We're challenged by Mordecai to in, in, in looking for recognition. Sorry, we're challenged about that selfishness, but we're also challenged by Xerxes. Xerxes doesn't really play a big part in this passage, but he sits back. He's kind of apathetic. He's lazy. We were thinking about that this morning. He wants the easy life. He has been given authority, and we know that all authority of all rulers is ultimately given by God, whether Xerxes realizes it or not. So he should take the issue seriously. Here's this man who comes in and he wants to kill a whole room of people. He ought to look into it seriously to find out who these people are, to find out what has happened, what, what a human wants to do, why he wants to do this. But he doesn't. He takes off the ring, hands it over, says, you go do whatever you want, you have my authority. And yes, he, he obviously trusts Haman, but this is neglect of his duty. It's shirking his responsibility that God has given him. And this is sin. Paul writes to the Colossians that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, Xerxes wasn't going to know the Lord Jesus. He wasn't going to know how to do everything um, through him, giving thanks to God the Father. But we're told to be careful, to be um, integral, if that's the right word, to have integrity in all that we do. All authority is given by God. So we're not be selfish and look for the easy way and wash your hands of it, as it were, because that's not how God sees it. So that's the first challenge. It's a challenge to our selfishness. Selfishness leads us to either be recognised, insisting our own way, or to just laziness from our God-given responsibilities. And none of those things are compatible with Christ's call to humility, to take up our cross, to follow him. But the second challenge is a challenge to our worldview. It's a challenge to our worldview, whether that is talking about sectarianism or just how we think of others, how we tar people with the same brush. We're responsible, we have a responsibility to check our own hearts. How do you think about people who are different? I have to say, as I thought about this this week, and I was thinking about those stories of, you know, egging the Catholic Church bus or, um, whatever it was. They beat us 6-1, by the way, so you know we, we were really enthusiastic when we were throwing those. You know, okay, that, that I can joke about that. It's in my past. It's in my childhood. But how do I think about people who are different? How do you think about Roman Catholics, people who come from nationalist areas? How do you think about people whose skin tone is maybe different to your own? How do you think about people who have different views to us on, on social issues? How do you think about gay people? I was reading something earlier in the week by um, Kevin DeYoung, and he made a point that really stood out to me. He said that, you know, 20 years ago, people just said, you know, Christians are stupid. Sure, we, we have science now. Those Christians are really dumb. You know, why do they believe all that? But people generally aren't saying that anymore. Today, they say that Christians are intolerant. They say they hate us. No, they think because we disagree with them that we hate them. And of course we know that's not true. But it also shouldn't be true. We need to make sure it isn't true as followers of Jesus, as we interact with people who have different views to us, <coughs> that we don't actually hate them, that we don't come across as if we hate them. 
Jesus himself spent time with those that the religious leaders of his day thought it was sinful, whether that was tax collectors, um, a smart woman, lepers, even the, even the fact that he spent so much time with women who were seen as a subclass at that time. Jesus taught us about the Good Samaritan and then he said, go, do likewise. It doesn't mean you have to compromise on what you believe. It doesn't mean you have to give up on your convictions. Remember the woman who was dragged in front of him, caught in adultery. What did he say to her? He said, go and leave your life of sin. He wasn't behind the door that she was sinning. But he also said, I don't condemn you. He loved her. He, he set her free from the punishment of death. And yet he wasn't behind the door in calling out her sin. So we have a responsibility to check our own hearts. Yes, we can have convictions, but we need to check our own hearts when we think about those who are different to us. I think it goes without saying from, from Esther chapter 3 as well. I mean, we, we see probably one of the greatest examples of anti-Semitism that, that has ever been seen in the actions of Haman. There's no place for that in Christianity, whether it's against Jewish people or, or people of another religion or race or whatever. It's not the way of Christ. But we don't just have a responsibility for ourselves, we also have a responsibility to the next generation. And not just those of us who are parents, but, but those of us who are part of a church community, whether our children, those of us who know children in our extended family even. It makes a huge difference. You know, I remember what my dad did that day in Ibrox when he, I can still kind of feel his hand on my arm. It stood out, it's imprinted on me, it's ingrained in me. I wouldn't claim that my parents are perfect, I wouldn't claim that either. But it made a huge difference. Uh, a couple of years ago, I suppose it's like, oh, five or six years ago, um, I was away in Nuremberg at a, at a conference in Nuremberg in Germany. And Nuremberg famously is where Hitler had all his rallies before the war and that, that you might have seen images of with huge, huge crowds. It's also where the trials, the war trials were held after the war. And it was a really harrowing experience. I had a free afternoon um, after the conference was over and I got to go around the museum in Nuremberg where these um, rallies took place. And it was a real, you know, it wasn't something that was going to cheer you up, I'll put it that way. And I know that some of you have been to concentration camps and that sort of thing. It, it was kind of a similar experience to that when you heard um, the, the harrowing story of how Hitler came to power and what he did and, and all the rest of it. But it is actually law in that region that every child who goes to school in that region of Germany must attend that museum. They have to go, they have to see it, they have to know the story. And the reason is so that that is not allowed to happen again. I know that many of you lived through more difficult days than I have in this part of the world. I lived through some difficult days um, in the early days of my life. But it is our responsibility. Train up a child in the way he should go when he's older, he won't depart from it. It's our responsibility to think not just about how we view others for ourselves, but to pass that on to the next generation. So those are the challenges. It's a challenge to our selfishness, it's a challenge to our worldview, but then the comforts. I think that this passage in Esther 3 gives us comfort in the unpredictability of our world. I mentioned earlier that the lot was cast, these little cubes. Joshua did it in Joshua 18. And David picks up on this in Psalm 16 as well, when his life is in danger. He says, Lord, you alone are my portion of my cup. You make my lot, that's the poor, it's the same word, secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. 
Well, David talks about boundary lines there. He's actually referring back to Joshua 7, the boundary lines for the tribes. But he says in his life, even though his life is in danger, he's on the run at the stage when he writes this. He says, Lord, you own my portion of my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. As the proverb says, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. Another version of that proverb says, you know, we may make decisions, but the Lord determines what actually happens. The Lord is in control. We sang it, and though I walk the darkest path, I will not fear the evil one. For you're with me, you're all in your staff, for the comfort I need to know. God is always in control. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. That word together is important. It's not just the that one thing that happens is going to be really good and pleasant for us, but God works all things together, ultimately for the good of those who love him. God in this book of Esther is present even though he's unseen and he's in control. And then finally, this is a comfort in the face of opposition. You know, there's always been a threat against God's people. Cain killing Abel, Pharaoh trying to kill all the young boys in Egypt, Herod doing the same in Bethlehem when he heard about the Messiah. Here we see it in Esther. If there's a threat to all the Jews, that means there's a threat to, to David's line. There's a threat to our salvation. Today, we face opposition. And maybe not quite to this extreme. I, I hope that nobody's running after us, trying to kill, destroy, and annihilate us. That would be scary. But I think it would be fair to say that we are facing resistance in our culture. But we read from Revelation earlier, and I realise that it's a difficult book to kind of jump into with all the imagery that's going on. This image of the beast is very much a part of that. But the people of the earth who don't belong to Jesus bow down to it, and those who don't comply are at a risk of going to prison or being killed. In fact, John says, and he quotes, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will God's people have always faced opposition from the devil, ultimately. And in the time between Jesus' return to heaven and his return from heaven, this is represented in Revelation 13 by this beast. I think it's unsurprising then that there are common themes across history in the opposition God's people face. In Revelation 13, 7, we're told that this beast was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Did you notice that Haman sent out his message in every language, to every tribe, in every place in the, in the region that was controlled by King Xerxes? This is how it works. And yet the victory that Christ wins, if we were to read further in Revelation, brings people together from every place, people, tribe, language, and nation. We might not at the moment face this kind of threat of being destroyed. We're pressured though, right across the world, to accept views, to validate views and opinions which are contrary to the Bible. And if we don't so, if we don't do so, we're branded intolerant and hateful. What does John say at the end of the passage we read? This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. It mightn't be easy, it might require patient endurance. It might be hard for us to see what God is doing in the midst of it all, but Christ told us it would happen. We read his words, and he's a worker of the world. So hang on in there. Patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. 
God is with us, God is present. Though we walk the darkest path, we don't fear the evil one because he's with us and he's conquered. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give you thanks for your word again. We give you thanks for the words that we have read together this evening. And as we see your people under threat of persecution, we recognize that in our day there are many in our world who face a similar threat. Lord, we want to lift up before you this evening your persecuted church, those right across the world who are maybe meeting today in secret with the doors locked, wondering if the door is going to um, be knocked or whether authorities are going to come bursting in, those who are in danger of being attacked by other groups. Lord, we thank you that in these situations so often your church thrives and flourishes against our logic. Lord, we pray for them that they would be protected, that many in these areas would come to Christ, that your Christians in those lands would be shining lights for you. But Lord, we pray for ourselves too in the opposition that we face. As we face being cancelled or just being shut out of friendship groups or being branded as intolerant, as irrelevant, Lord, we pray that you would be working in the hearts of those around us by your Spirit to open their eyes to the good news of what Jesus has done. Lord, may we be equipped to faithfully endure, to obey you, to stand out for you, so that no one may accuse us by our conduct. Lord, help us tonight as we do examine our hearts, our hearts as we think about those who are around us. Lord, help us not to be self-seeking. Change us to be more like Christ, who reached out to all who was a great servant, servant obedient even to death on a cross, and yet, Lord, who was holy and blameless, who really no one could accuse. The accusations did not stack up. Lord, continue to walk with us, mould us into the image of your Son, so that your will would be accomplished through.